This is Mike from Grouch and a Brainstorm, and here recently we had the opportunity to sit down with Phil F. from the Koala Club after a long history of helping others and being at the Koala Club. He's decided to go on his next journey. So here we go. Without further ado, take it away. Basically what this is for, my name is Matt. Uh, we're interviewing Phil. I got Mike with me, um, and this is Phil F., and I'm going to let him introduce himself, but uh, this is for... Uh, just kind of a historical record and archive for the state of Louisiana uh, for Alcoholics Anonymous. And they're going to put these in an archive for people to be able to listen to. And we kind of wanted to grill him a little bit about the early days, his early days in Alcoholics Anonymous. And so we are, uh, but we're sitting here with Phil and I'm going to let him introduce himself and just kind of start off with, uh, with, with the beginning, you know. You don't need one. Just talk. It's recording. Yeah, it's picking up everything. Well, my name is Phil. I'm a very grateful alcoholic. And because the program works and Jesus loves me, I haven't got a, haven't had to take a drink since 10 May 79, a day at a time. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. I, uh, I got sober in Las Vegas in 79. And uh, sobering up in Las Vegas is really exciting. Uh, I think I had to pass eight bars that I drank in occasionally, <laughs> or got thrown out of, uh, to get to the TIE club. And, uh, you know, if, if you wonder if Jesus is alive in your life, the first person that I met in Las Vegas and hit it off with and started fishing with was a guy in the program. He's been sober six years. That's Danny M. He'll have 50 this year, I think. Wow. And uh, uh, he 12-stepped me for three years, and all that went right over my head. The first year he asked me, you think you got a drinking problem? And I said, nah, I ain't got no problem. And then the second year he asked me, now remember, I'm in a boat with this guy two, three days a week on Lake Mead and when it was full. And... Uh, the second year he asked me, he said, hey, you think you got a drinking problem? And I said, well, I might have a little problem, but I got a handle on it, I'm okay. And the third year he asked me, do you think you got a drinking problem? I was driving into the setting sun in, up near Searchlight on the way to Cottonwood Cove. And uh, desert sunsets are blazing hot. And I had a terrible whiskey hangover. I said something real nasty to him, and he figured, well, we're getting there, you know, it won't be long. And uh, what else would you like to know? Well, um, what, well, let me ask you this. What, what for you, how old were you when you came into to AA, into the program? I was 29 years old, and it's funny about this topic tonight, because on the morning of the 10th of May, I put a gun barrel in my mouth. And the only thing that stopped me was remembering what the nuns said in grade school. I went to a Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, uh, that uh, if you commit suicide, you go to hell. And, uh, and it is a real selfish thing. And I, I, I thought hell might be worse than that. So I got up and I had alcohol poisoning. I was, I was sweating out of every pore of my body. And, uh, sheets on my bed were sweated and, and uh, I was physically ill and I called my friend's house, Danny, and, and his wife answered the phone and, and she was one of us. She didn't particularly care for me, but 
you know, personalities. What do they say about that? Recovery before personality. Personality. Program, Program before personality. I had to think about it for a little while. Anyway, I said, is Danny there? She goes, no, honey, he's not. He's at work. I said, well, I, I can't drink anymore, Lois. And she said, well, do you have a gun in your hand? And I don't know how she knew that. And I said, yeah, I do, as a matter of fact. She said, well, put it in the refrigerator, unlock the front door, fill a bathtub full of hot water, and get in it. And Danny will be there in a little while. That was my first act of faith. I didn't take a gun in the bathroom with me. So I had some paranoid issues back then. And they were, I brought them all on myself. You know, if you're single and you're fooling around married women, eventually somebody's going to shoot your ass, you know. So I probably shoot myself. That's okay. No. But uh, I had some paranoid issues there. And he came and he helped me. Helped me get out of the tub. And it, it was about 9.30, quarter to 10 in the morning. And after four tries, I kept a McDonald's cheeseburger down. I don't ever want to be that sick again. And, and you know, I'll tell you, th this is so cunning, baffling, and powerful. About a month and a half before I did this, uh, a friend, a guy that I knew in Vietnam, wasn't actually a friend, but we were in on together, and, and he, he was coming through Vegas, and uh, oh, we drank all the Jack Daniels we could and I was sick as hell the next day. I mean, I was really, really sick. And and I, I kept thinking, gee, I don't I don't want to feel like this again anymore. And here, a month later, I'm doing it. I'm putting a gun barrel in, in my mouth. And I got, I got back, and this is important. I got back from the war in 71. And I didn't want to wade streams anymore or fish small lakes. I wanted to fish big lakes. So I bought a bass boat. And I discovered, after I was sober, I realized this, I discovered that I was either gonna drink beer or I was gonna bass fish, but I couldn't drink beer and bass fish because as soon as I started drinking beer, that's all I wanted to do. I didn't want to bass fish anymore. So I didn't, I didn't carry any beer in the boat. And uh, uh, that was a, a, a good thing. It was a message right there that I was ready for the program then, but I was, I was too arrogant then. And this was in 71. 70, 74. 74. Yeah, I was in 74 and I got here in 79. So you were roughly 24 years old. How long had you been drinking your whole life? 16 years. I would have been drinking longer, except we didn't have no money for no booze. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I cut grass and, and did other things and did shovel work and this and that. And, and, uh, because my dad was tight as a tick. If you wanted money from my old man, you better have a pretty good reason. And uh, his standard his standard retort to, hey, can I have some money, Dad, was uh, go get a job. Well, I got a job, Dad. Well, get another one, because nobody's ever going to give you anything. I used to think that was bad, but I haven't expected anybody to give me anything in my entire life. So, One of those dad lessons, you know? Yeah, you don't realize how important it is until it's, until it's later. You were born in Missouri? I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm adopted. My, my biological mother put me up for adoption, so I'm sure that uh, either she and him, I'm, I'm sure that one of them was an alcoholic, maybe both of them. 
Because I, I was just, I've always been an alcoholic, just waiting for a drink. That's all. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first my first taste of uh, draft beer was at softball games with older guys. They'd bring a pony and they'd pass a one pound coffee can around guys to drink out of it because they weren't afraid to shit the drink <laughs> behind each other. Then. Yeah. And I didn't particularly like it, but uh, I wanted to be a big guy like them, so I did that. Funny how we kind of know pretty early on with us, whereas regular folks, they don't, you know. Uh, so you grew up in Missouri? Yeah. And then joined the military? Yeah, I joined the Air Force in uh, 1968. It's funny, I, I just bought this house down in Conroe, and I enlisted in the Air Force with less papers than I'm filling out to buy this house in Conroe. You know, it's more or less, sign here, raise your hand, get your ass down the hallway. Yeah. You know, that's, Pretty much what it was. Go dive right in. <laughs> and uh, you eighteen when you when you enlisted? Say again. Were you eighteen? I was eighteen or nineteen. Okay. I can't I can't remember. Uh, I had a pretty good job. I was making pretty good money. Uh, I was in the last. I was in the last bunch that got paid out of a paymaster's box. When it come time for payday, you walked up to the table and you've heard the expression military signature. That's what they tell you, put your military signature right there. Here's your pay, put a dollar in the first sergeant's bowl and get away from the table. And they gave me $56 and I said, where's the rest of it? And I got slapped and told to put a dollar in the first sergeant's bowl and get down wind real quick. Because it was different there. Yeah. Yeah, 50, I thought 56 bucks. I was, I was taking home $110 a week. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, really. 56 bucks to put your life on the line at that. Yeah. And, and, and I wasn't smart enough to know this at the time, but I, I couldn't vote or I, yeah. 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 I turned 21 in Vietnam. That's where I learned. I got a little taste for a big fat joint there. And uh, uh, I started drinking. To, and it's got nothing to do with the Air Force. It's all about the alcoholism in, in me. Uh, I, I started learning how to drink to feel different about myself there. And. Uh, that's what I did. And I came back to the States. I went to, went to Scott Air Force. But I caused a lot of trouble in a lot of places with my drinking, you know. I, I'm, I could have gone to jail two or three times doing stuff that I just wasn't supposed to do, you know. I mean, I'm not even going to put it on this tape, but just trust me. I did, I did some pretty outrageous shit with another guy named Foley, and if he's not sober, he's dead. <laughs> okay, because he was way past where I. No relation. No relation. He, he come from, Except for in the. He come from Chicago. Yeah, he was. He was real crazy. So. Anyway. Uh, so I got a question for you. Sure. So the the and this is what I'm interested in, and and where this conversation started. I know how it is today with the internet and with all that stuff, and and you know you can find somebody who knows somebody, but. When you get started getting sober, as far as twelve-step calls and how was AA back then? Uh, 
you know, the TIE club. People need, yeah, needing help. And somebody would ring, somebody would call the, uh, the club, the TIE club, mm-hmm. and then there'd be people that would uh, be asked if they wanted to go on a 12, and we went out on 12-step calls. Mm-hmm. We didn't let any women go alone back then. You know, man always went alone. Uh, uh, my friend Danny's wife and I went on one to a gal, and halfway through it, uh, I heard him get up. I heard he put his pants on. He had change in his pants, but I, you know, I, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. You know, and uh, he came out. He pretty much ran us off. That was fine. You know, we weren't there for him anyway. And you know, there was no cell phones in, so I carried a roll of dimes in my van everywhere I went. My sponsor told me I had to have 30 or 40 guys' names and phone numbers and carry those in my uh, my wallet all the time. And, and I think that saved me one day. I, I had a real bad day. I, I had a lousy day at work. I had a lousy day after work. I got off the base, got home. My house had been broke into. I had a pretty good idea who did it. I drove around looking for him with a loaded pistol. I was really upset. And I don't know, after about an hour of that, I thought, well, I better go to a meeting. So I, as I went to a meeting there in North Las Vegas, they were throwing a guy out the front door for, being, for not being nice. And uh, I don't know, that kind of put me off. So I, I got my roll of dimes and I started calling people. And I got this guy named Happy Jack, and he worked at Cashman Cadillac there in Las Vegas. And uh, Happy Jack had been sober for a while. And uh, he told me to come down there. So I came down there and we drank coffee and talked and wanted to know what happened, and I told him. And, and I wanted to know what happened, what happened with my section commander, and I told him, and and, uh, and I didn't drink that day. And uh, I don't think I really wanted to drink. I wanted to shoot the asshole broke in my house really bad. You know, I uh, I took a wife to Las Vegas, and after about eighteen months of marriage, she uh, she partnered up with somebody else. And uh, I was pretty upset about that. Um, I think I drank a lot through that, and I was angry a lot through that. And and I think I was homicidal once or twice through that. And uh, I think Jesus did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And and he he protected me. And you know, I'll tell you, uh, I worked with that guy, and... uh, I got sober in May, and I wished my ex-wife and him Merry Christmas. That first Christmas, I was sober. Seven months later. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You know, there's a lot. There's a lot that changes. You know, if you if you go to meetings and you work the steps and you say your prayers, and you genuinely want to be sober, and I wanted to be sober more than anything else that I wanted to be, and I. At about two weeks, I went home one night and got down on my knees and asked uh, Jesus to please take my compulsion to drink away, and he did. And I've never asked for it back, and he hasn't offered it, and I don't want it. 
And, and that's kind of how things go. Has, have, have I had some difficulties in my sobriety? Yeah, I've had the last rites four times, so there's been some drama and some other nonsense, but you know, I've always stuck close to the program and I've always stuck close to the people in the program. I've always had a sponsor. Except for one year when I decided to sponsor myself and I was crazy that year, I needed a sponsor, you know. I was fortunate, I had friends that told me, you know, you, you come to one meeting a week, you come in here and you unload and you scare everybody and you leave, you, you're sick. I'm gonna guess this is year 13. Yeah, you heard me say that. Year 13. And, uh, oh, I was crazy, I was just, I was just barely getting enough AA not to drink, but I wasn't getting enough AA to act right. <laughs> well, it makes perfectly good sense. And I had a terrible temper. I mean, I was 13 years sober and acting like an impolite person pretty regularly. And so I, I, got, I got back where I belonged. Where the, the members of AA told you you needed to be? Yes. Other men told me. You know, you're scaring the straights in here now. You need you need to go to more meetings. So I started going to more meetings. You know, you know I'm going to tell you when I got sober, you really, you really had to, you really wanted to be sober to be in some of the groups in AA because there was no touchy feely shit at all. I mean, if you don't like what's going on in here, carry your ass back out there. I've heard him say I heard him say that a lot. There was a gal beside me, a little gal threw a fit over something, and another woman stood up and said, why don't you get your ass out of here and go settle down and come back some other time? And I thought, ooh, I don't want him to do that to me. I'm going to be quiet. And I, I had a bad night in a meeting in about six months, and I didn't really throw a fit. I was just really upset. And a guy from Oklahoma turned around, and he said, hey, sport. <laughs> Called me sport, I thought, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he said, listen, here's a marble. The next time you get this angry, go outside, take that marble and throw it away, and that way you've lost all your marbles. <laughs> I carried marble around in my pocket for years. When I went to Saudi Arabia and worked there, I took a bag of marbles with me, just to be, just to be sure. And had my marble with me all the time. People ask me about that, and I tell them, well, it's for luck. They, they just wouldn't understand it. I had a, I had a lot of things happen. Uh, I come out of a meeting one night, and a guy come up to me in the park lot, and I saw him in the club. And he was dressed reasonably nice, and he said, listen, I'm going across country, and I just got out of prison after 16 years, and I got to do a fourth and fifth step. And I listened to you talk in the meeting, and maybe you'll understand some of this. I'm like, yeah, okay. And uh, th this guy killed a lot of people in prison. I mean, federal prisons, that's how that is. I'm absolutely positive. He, he just killed a lot of people there. And, and he put all that in his fourth and fifth step, and he asked me what I thought. I said, well, as far as I'm concerned, if you come after me and you, you lose, that's, that's, hey, you know. <laughs> Sorry, that's just how it is, you know. Uh, and then he went on, and uh, my sponsor got a 12-step call and went to this guy's room in a motel, and the guy had a, a fifth, 
Jim Beam on the bed, and he had a a 45 and it had the clip in it. Now the hammer wasn't back, but the clip was in the gun. So it could very well have been been loaded. And the guy said, I'm gonna watch my language here. He said, I'm either gonna drink or I'm gonna blow my brains out. And Danny said, well, well, you left out the third one. And he goes, what's that? And he goes, well, you can stay sober. And Danny spent a couple of hours with them and talked to him. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you something. When I was still drinking, I was dating a gal, a gal that worked as the uh, bookkeeper in a Smith's Food King grocery store. Real nice lady. Really enjoyed her company. And we got home from a date one night, and her phone was ringing, and her two girls had been killed in an automobile accident that day in Arizona where they were going to school. And I was a state trooper, and uh, I mean, she was just absolutely decimated. She was, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Decimated. Yeah. Is that, is that right? It's a word, yeah. That's right. Yeah, she was just. Emotionally destroyed. Yeah, she was just absolutely taken back. I mean, and, and I just didn't know what to do. So I called Danny, and I said, hey, this lady's just lost both of her daughters, and I don't know what, how to settle her down. And, I want you to talk to her. And he talked to her for about an hour and she went to sleep. I don't know what he said, never asked him. Yeah. And uh, that's, you know, that's, that, that, that's who brought me into the program. And, and uh, I've been to AA meetings all over the world. I've been to AA meetings in, uh, I think I've been to a meeting in Canada. And I know I've been to plenty of meetings in Saudi Arabia. Hmm. The Oasis Group is in Dahran, Saudi Arabia. And I've been to meetings in England. And I went to a meeting in Jordan, didn't understand any of that, but I was there and I got what I needed, okay. And uh, which wasn't a knife in the back that I got out of there one <laughs> piece. I mean, yeah, sometimes they don't like infidels, okay. Even sober ones. And, and I was a loner for uh, 18 months, I guess, in Saudi Arabia. I was at a place called Tabuk, and I would talk to different people and tell them about my experiences and talk to them about AA, and it was, it was for me, I had my big book and I had my two knees. I had my 12 and 12 of my Asbill season. And then there was a guy that showed up there that was in a program, and uh, I woke him up too many times. I'm sorry I did that, Jesus. But uh, I, I, I don't know. We uh, That was Doug Spate. And uh, Doug and I went to some meetings and ran around together a little bit. And uh, you got to always be careful what you pray for. Because two weeks before I met my wife, I prayed to Jesus to meet one good woman when I went back to the States. Because I was... I was tired of chasing ladies, you know. I didn't think that was very sober. I was having fun at it, but I wasn't. I didn't think it was very sober. So, uh, I met my wife in a gift shop in Dalaran, Saudi Arabia, two weeks later. Your wife, now Vicky? Yes. And you met her in Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia. I did not know that. What year did you meet her? Do you remember? 1981, maybe. Okay. 
Yeah, she was figuring out the exchange rate between Saudi reals and American dollars. Yeah. And I said, there's a smart shopper. I had no idea you met her in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. And, and the next day, and, and I, I went to the, uh, the, the motel where the airline had them stay in. And uh, it's by the ocean there. And uh, we, we talked, and, and I said, listen, I'm off tomorrow. How, how would you like to see some of the stores of souks? That's an Arabic word for store. Some of the gold souks that you'd never be able to find otherwise. She goes, yeah, I'd like to do that. So I picked her up, and I took her to a store, and I dressed her with this. I, I covered all of her hair up, and I put two scarves over her head, tucked it all in here. And the, the, I forgot the Arabic word for dress, but it went down to her ankles. I made sure her wrists were covered. And I said, no matter what happens, you can't touch me in public. If, if I trip and fall and break my leg, call the Lockheed compound and don't touch me. Whatever happens, don't touch me. And uh, I, I took her all over those places. And one of those stores was about as wide as that doorway to that wall. And it was solid gold. Gold on the floor, gold on the walls, gold on the ceiling, gold behind the counter, gold over here, gold over there. Because Arab men give their wives gold bracelets for male children. Hmm. You see some of them old black black veils running around. With, they look like hash marks from bracelets from here to there. Wow. You wow. Know? Yeah, yeah, that's where I met Vicky. And Vicky uh, and I just celebrated 40 years a while back. Yeah. So let me ask you this. So you, you're in Vegas, You the the transition here, you came here from there, or what was that? I went to, uh, uh, after the first wife and I split up, uh, I was so broke I couldn't pay attention. I just, I had to pay for her car, I had to pay for other stuff. I was working two jobs plus the Air Force. I mean, I was using a credit card for fishing tournaments and gas and food. And, and it kept getting bigger and bigger, and I thought, shit, they're going to turn this off pretty soon. And uh, I was just, I was broke. And uh, I went to work one day, and somebody had cut something out of a paper that Lockheed International was looking for air traffic controllers to go to Saudi Arabia to train Arabs to be air traffic controllers. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty good. And so I wrote a resume and sent a resume to them. And about four weeks later, I quit thinking about it. About four weeks later, was I sober then? I think I was, I think, I believe I was sober when I did that. I was. About four weeks later, uh, I was working, uh, I was working airplanes in the air. I was talking to a lot of airplanes. I was talking to, I don't know, 18, 20, 22 fighters. And uh, Lockheed called the control tower there, my work number. And my boss answered the phone, and I heard him say, nobody can relieve him right now. He's too busy. Unless he drops dead, nobody's going to relieve him right now. And they go, well, that's really great. Have him call us. So I went there, and uh, I went to a couple of interviews, and uh, I got the job. <laughs> and, and I'm at the uh, contract signing cocktail party. And I'm standing there, and I got a can of 7-Up in my hand. You can't drink too much 7-Up. It'll give you gas, but... Anyway, I got I got this can of seven up in my hand, and this old Navy chief walks up to me, and he says, "Cowboy boots from Nevada, and you're drinking seven up." And uh, I said, "Well, just because I'm from Nevada doesn't mean I got to fill them up with cores every night, you know." 
Later that night, he had to get the people that he just signed contracts with Lockheed to help him find his car because he got so drunk he couldn't remember where it was. Funny you see little things like that. Yeah. You, know, you, just, you just see little things like that. So I went to uh, Saudi Arabia for a couple of years. I came back. Uh, I did a... I worked for a casino for a little while. I didn't like that. In Vegas? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't like that too much. It was in maintenance, and I just didn't care for it. And uh, I got a job with uh, with the FAA as a, as a strip puller and some other stuff. And uh, that was after their strike, and some of those boys were just hard to get along with. If, if you had been an air traffic controller in the Air Force and went to that facility, they're going to give you a hard time. I told them to shove that. I worked for the Nevada Highway Patrol for a little while, and uh, that wasn't what I wanted. And by this time, I was, uh, Vicki and I had gotten married, and so uh, I went back in the Air Force and I went to uh, Nellis. Is that right? Yeah. I went to Nellis. No. No. I went to uh, Scott Air Force Base. Scott, no. I went here. I went to Barksdale. I'm sorry. And I uh, went to Barksdale, and, and I did four years in the tower here. And uh, it's amazing how bad some of the management in the Air Force can be in the enlisted grades. It's terrible. And uh, you just don't run down supervisors in front of their own people. You just, you know, you praise in public and chastise in private. Some of these guys just couldn't get that. Anyway, uh, I got a four-year control tour at the leadership school here when the 8th Air Force Leadership School was here, and I taught school for the Air Force for four years and had a big time doing it. I had a big time doing that. And I got done with that, and then uh, uh, the Air Force tried to send me along a company to Germany, and I just told the chief down there, his name was Blackburn at the time, I said, I ain't going to Germany, I ain't taking my family. He said, well, you got a line number for master. I said, that's right. I only got to put in six months, chief. And everybody in the Air Force, the real Air Force out here knows that. Okay, so where else do you want me to go? So they sent me to Grand Forks, North Dakota. And if you're going to give the Air Force an enema, that's where you put the nozzle. <laughs> oh, God almighty, that was, that was terrible. It was so cold up there, it was just... That place just sounds cold. Oh, it's just cold. It's cold. It is cold. But the AA was good up there. And uh, uh, towards the end of that, that's where that brain tumor almost killed me. Yeah. So you were in North Dakota whenever the brain tumor... Yeah, yeah, I got the last rites three times. Let me see, I got the last rites three times that night, once at the Air Force Base, once in downtown uh, Grand Forks. They didn't have a neurosurgeon in the hospital. He was in Miami, sun suntanning, and didn't have backup. So they put me in an ambulance, and they rushed me to Fargo. And there's a good hospital in Fargo, North Dakota. That's St. Mary's. And uh, they did a CAT scan real quick and told my wife, we don't think he's got a brain tumor. We, or they, they told her I had an aneurysm. They said, we don't think he's got an aneurysm. We think he's got a tumor. We'll prove it to you in the morning. And then it, it, I had to wait six days to wake up. And uh, they told me what the deal was. And uh, I asked the nurse. She showed me all these pictures and stuff. I said, is that a brain tumor? 
And she said, yeah. And I said, oh, shit, there goes deer season. <laughs> she, she went out to the waiting room and said, is that your husband in there? He's upset about deer season. <laughs> she goes, that's him. That's, that's him. And uh, uh, they, they brought me back to the Air Force Base, and they took me on an air back down to, to Texas, and uh, they got all the tumor out but 10%. I don't worry about that. I turned that over to Jesus a long time ago. And I came back, and I uh, separated from uh, the Air Force, and... The Air Force tried to wrap me around the axle with some disability and other stuff. That's a long story. I ended up spending another three months down there in San Antonio because the Air Force tried to give me 10% disability for a brain tumor. So I spent all summer and ended up with 40% and I came home. And uh, I've been coming to this club for a long time. I think I've been coming to this club since I had 13 years. So how did you end up in Shreveport, Bossier? How did you end up in... At Air Force Base. Okay. Well, we came back here as fast as we could. Okay, so this was home. At that yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, to, to move to Conroe, Texas. So let me ask you this question, and this is going back to the history of how things were done. So you move here, you don't know anybody, and you're working at the Air Base. How do you find out where the Koala Club is? How do you how do you make that connection? Like Find somebody in a meeting somewhere and ask them where they go to meetings. Sure. I ain't never been slow. I have never been on... What's the word I'm looking for? Shy about, Shy about that. I found a club with and meetings and people in uh, Conroe already. And uh, I can already tell you who the whiner in the meeting is. And, <laughs> and who the guy that knows everything. I just, I just sit there and listen. I try not to be either one. You know, Seem to have those character defects flaw hey, up everywhere. What can I say? You know, <laughs> But that's how I found that. Jim Whitman helped build this club. Mm-hmm. And I fished with Jim for a while. And Jim brought me over here. Mark Mark Bogart got married in this club. And uh, I've been coming here for a long time. And uh, I've met a lot of really, really good people here. I've buried a lot of people I met here, too. And uh, I think it's my responsibility as a recovering member of Alcoholics Anonymous to pray for the souls of our deceased AA members. And uh, I'm Catholic. I believe in a heaven. And uh, I prefer to go there. And I believe in a hell. And I really don't want to go there. And uh, I want to pray for my deceased friends. And uh, if I can help them out with my prayer, I want to do that. So that's that's what I do. And... Uh, I've got a friend that I that I buried over here, and I stop by her grave pretty regular and say hi to Kim and ask her how she's doing and tell her to talk to Jesus and put a good word in for me. You know what I haven't said on this? I haven't talked too much, have I? No, no, no. You know, people come in here and they think, well, why me? Why did I get sober? I can tell you why I got sober. Because my mother passed away. And she got in front of Jesus and said, listen, he's a good boy. He's got a bad temper, but he's a good boy. If we get him off the booze, he's going to be okay. That is the only reason I can think that I have been given this gift. Because it ain't because such a, what a good, great guy I am. And it wasn't because 
I was the daddy of the millennium, and I wasn't the best husband. I wasn't. I quit worrying about why I got this. I already know why I got this. This this is the greatest gift that anybody's ever given me in my life. Jesus gave this to me, and there's no question in my mind that as long as I ask Him, as long as I ask Him to help me to protect my gift, He will. And. Uh, a lot of folks get here, and I think they're in a dilemma. They're in a dilemma of, well, I might drink or I might not drink, or I'll stay sober for a month or two and get everybody off my back, or I'll do this and I'll do that. And they don't understand what they're dealing with. They just don't understand alcoholism, and they don't understand what they're dealing with. And they don't understand that it never goes away. The day the first shovel full of dirt hits me in the face, uh, it'll be dead, but I'll have the gene in my head somewhere. Okay. And uh, it's unfortunate they don't get sponsors. And and the steps were a big thing where I got sober. I knew all, by the time I was sober six months, I, I, I knew the steps. And I knew how to work the steps. I wasn't ready to sponsor anybody, that didn't think. But, you know... Uh, and then a, a big guy showed up at the meeting one night. His name was Don M. And uh, Don, at that time, Don was real healthy. And if he walked through that door, there wouldn't be much room. Okay, big boy. Yeah. And uh, Don was a Jack Daniels uh, cocaine guy. And uh, I sponsored uh, Big Don for a long time. And I still talk to Big Don once a month. He's in, he's in uh, Whitney. Whitney. No, that's Lake Whitney. He's in. Uh, I forgot the name of the town. It's just down the road in Texas. Shame on me for not going down there. Uh, Don, uh, Don was just, he's just a good guy. He's got a good heart. And there were a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life in Las Vegas. There was a Between the Shows meeting that I think is still there. It was at a bar called Duffy's that they turned in. First time somebody took me there, I said, I ain't going in there, it's a bar, I've been thrown out of there. They said, no, no, it's, a, it, it's not, it's an AA club. I said, bullshit, that's a bar because I've been asked to leave politely. Okay, I know, I, you got too loud at the bar with the F words. And, and uh, he said, no, no, come on in here. And I walked in there and I'll be damned if it wasn't an AA club. And I went to that meeting all the time and there was a woman there from Minnesota and she said she drank because her coper was broke. She couldn't cope with her husband. She couldn't cope with her kids. She couldn't cope with the mailman. She couldn't cope with nobody unless she had some vodka and some, what's that big muscle relaxer? Uh, Soma? No. No, this. Uh, Percocet? No. No. Uh, Value. Value. That's a big yeah. one. Well, that is a big one. Doctors screwed a lot of women up in the 50s with that sure. because they'd get hooked up with that and, and, you know, they couldn't be drug addicts. They were getting it from the doctors, you know, but she was doing both of those two and she said, uh, I came to AA and I got my coper fixed and now I can cope with all that stuff <laughs> and not drink. And, you know, I was sitting there thinking, well, she might be talking about me. And, you know, they always say if you go to enough meetings... You're going to hear somebody tell your story 
I heard a guy tell my story in a meeting in Las Vegas. It was just a different desert. Almost the same, almost the same thing. And he'd been in the Navy, and I'd been in the Air Force, and he was full of shit, and I wasn't, you know. You know how sailors are. <laughs> sailors, fishermen. Yeah, yeah, all the above. But uh, if, if, if I say anything important through this, I'd want new people to understand that the rest of their life is at stake when they get to Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not, am I going to have a good time, or is my girlfriend going to like me, or will my husband like me if I'm not drinking? That's not what this is about. This is about saving your life. Because people who drink, who have this problem, it was said in a meeting tonight, you get one of three places. You get sobered up, covered up, or locked up. And that's all there is to it. And, and you know, a little club like this, every now and again somebody goes back out and dies. But where I got sober in Vegas, there was 250 people on, on a Friday night meeting there. People died there all the time. They died there all the time. And uh, I gave a guy some money once. Uh, I was on vacation home from Saudi Arabia. It's the first time in my life I ever walked around with a couple hundred bucks in my pocket. I never did that before. And uh, boy, that felt good. And uh, I was trying to stay humble about that. And this guy said he had it eight in a couple of days. And so I gave him $25. Now back then, you could eat at McDonald's all week for 25 bucks, right? Yeah, oh yeah. He took the 25 to a liquor store and bought all the booze he could buy, got around in the back of it, sat down by the dumpster, and somebody came along and beat him to death and took it away from him. And I thought I'd killed him for a long time. And uh, I didn't kill him. His name was Jimmy. I didn't kill him. Alcoholism killed him. Uh, but I'm really careful about giving new people money. I'll take them to... I'll take them to McDonald's. I'll buy them a bag of burgers. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll do all that, but I ain't giving nobody no money no more. Not like that. That, you know, that, that hurt too much. And people come in here and they think we're supposed to diagnose them, and we're not. You're supposed to make your own diagnosis in here. You take all the information that's given you, and if you pay attention in meetings and listen and have a sponsor, You'll get all the information you need in the first 90 days to make a good decision on whether you belong here or not. And, you know, if you can't guarantee where you're going to go or what you're going to say, <coughs> excuse me, or where you're going to end up when you drink, you, you probably belong here. Because that's, that's the way I am. I can't guarantee where I'm going to go, what I'm going to say, who I'm going to end up with, what city I'm going to end up in. I, I can't guarantee any of that because I've already proved that. So that's, that's the deal. Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is to the alcoholic what dialysis is to the kidney patient. You don't ever see anybody skipping dialysis. That's right. And if they do skip dialysis, they're going to die. Yeah. I mean, that's just all it. I mean, that that's that's what AA is. That this is this is my lifeline right here. And 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 I hope someday somebody listens to this and, and realizes that I, you know I don't have to bullshit about this. 
In five days, I'll have 44 years of sobriety, one day at a time. I don't drink. I don't need any pain pills for fun. I had my ear worked on the other day, and it was uh, I didn't realize it until the doctor cut a quarter inch of my ear off that she, uh, she didn't dispense pain medicine, and it was everything I could do not to get really angry in there. I've had a lot of surgery. i got pain medicine at home. I don't flush pain medicine away. I don't have a pain problem. And I'm too damn old to lay around and hurt all night long, okay? So I brought a bottle of pain pills up here and I showed them to Jamie Thompson. And I said, how many of these can I take? He said, you can take two of those. When I got home, I called a friend of mine who's a pharmacist in the program. I said, how many of those can I take? He said, you take two of them. And he said, if it's still bad, take some ibuprofen with them. And that's what I did and I got through the first night. And I got up about 6.30 in the morning and I did it again because the damn thing really hurt. And uh, in this meeting, I went out and I took two a leave because it's starting to ache a little bit again. But I, I understand today that my alcoholism wants me to take pills when I don't need it. And I understand today that my alcoholism wants me to smoke a big fat joint. And I understand today that my alcoholism wants me to get in trouble in other ways where it can make me feel guilt and shame. Guilt and shame are super big motivators to drink again. That's why we have sponsors. That's why I can call my sponsor and go, I didn't do very good here. I did real bad. I have some guilt and shame and we need to talk about it. And my sponsor will talk about that as long as I want to talk about it. And since I sponsor his ass, he will sponsor <laughs> he will. I will listen to him with everything that he's got to say because I love him. He's a... I don't know, he's like he's like a beam of light in the fog some days. I even with all this time, you know, I, I still have days where uh, life I don't understand life today. I'm seventy three and I don't understand a lot about things. So I just I, I don't read the news a lot. I don't I still read it a little bit but not too much in it. You know. Is it I, I wanna say this before we go off and uh tom- tomorrow um I'm going to have five years of sobriety, and I came in here right off the bat uh, out of treatment. And, Phil, you were one of the first people that I heard share in a meeting, and I heard your sobriety date, and I said, man, he's been sober as long as I've been alive, you know, basically. And uh, I have I have watched you and, and other folks in here with a lot of time, and I say old-timers, and I say that in a respectful way. I've watched your actions uh, not as much as your words, but the things that you do. And you still go to a lot of meetings. You still help new people. You you make sure somebody has a big book when they come in here um, and make sure they leave here with one. And there's a lot of other things you do, and, and we could spend a whole other time on that. But I just want to say you've been a big part of me being able to sit where I'm at, and I'm very grateful for that. And we're, we're going to miss you. I know that. And a lot of people are. But you know I just want to say. You know what that. I'm grateful for? What's that? I was sitting in a meeting when Mike walked in for the first time. <laughs> this time when he stayed. And I got to tell you what. I wasn't sure Mike was going to make it through the whole meeting. We're still worried about him, Phil. No, we're you not. Know? <laughs> Mike's going to stay sober one day at a time because Mike's got a great program. And he learned it yes, in sir. here. And he got it from Dale. And Dale got it from John Jennings. Yeah. And, and, uh. It's such a blessing to watch people come in here and 
get in touch with their get in touch with their God and and stay sober. And you said something in a meeting the other day that really struck me when you said the voice of God. I had to look that up. I looked it up three or four places. The voice of God. I I want to make sure if that's ever my voice that, that I'm that what I'm saying is hundred percent. You know you know what I mean? Yes, sir. Yeah. That, that's that's all I got. I have to get anything else? Huh? No, sir. Thank you for your time. This Thank you. Too. We I love appreciate you guys. It. Yes, sir. We love you, we too, love you man. Wow, what a great opportunity to get to sit down with Phil and talk to him about his his trip through recovery. And I know that uh, if it wasn't for him, I don't know where I would be. Sorry about some of that audio, but uh, it was good content. So I'm Mike signing out.